If I don't make a whole lot of sense today, I'm going to blame it on Benadryl. Um, I don't know if you have allergies, but I do, and I popped a, a children's Benadryl thinking it wouldn't affect me that much, and I've been foggy-headed the rest of the morning, so I apologize. Let me read for us to, as we get started from a few verses from chapter 21, and then we'll skip to, to chapter 22. Just look at the first five verses of chapter 21 of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated at the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Then look at chapter 22, the first few verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. These are words of extreme hope. Uh, And I hope uh, personally to be able to encourage us from these passages today. Um, In our time together in the next few weeks, what we're going to try to do is be extremely practical. To look at the end of where things are headed and then draw practical everyday applications for our life. Let me give us, as we get started today, two ways of thinking, two paradigms for really how to live life. Um, I have, we have on our uh, mantle, in case, you know, people, we, have, we try to have people in our home a good bit, and we have uh, a little game, it's just a little box, and you, you basically, what you do is you, you open the box and you pull a card out, and it's got a scenario on the back. And all it's really for is, to, is conversation starters. So you ask the question, you give the scenario, and then you kind of say, what? Well, what would you do with this situation? One day we were, we were talking with some friends that were over and I pulled a card out. And this is what it said. It said, if you were on a sports team and you had the choice, would you rather be the best player on a losing team or the worst player on a winning team? Again, if you're on the sports team, if you had the choice, would you rather be the best player on a losing team or the worst player on a winning team? And so I struggled with this. For, uh, for that night and then for the days that followed, I, I think about it every once in a while and, and wrestle with this idea. The best player is appealing, right? To, to think of the, the glory, you know, the, the pats on the back, being the best player on, on the team, thought well of, felt, feeling, feeling needed. But there's only one drawback, and that is that at the end of the day, no matter how good you are, you're still a loser, Right? You're the best player, but you're on a losing team. 
Well, what about the other side? Well, you're the worst player. That's a little bit harder for our, for our ego to stomach. Maybe not always the go-to guy. Maybe you're not the center of attention all the time. But, again, there's one major positive this time. At the end of the day, you're a winner. Think about that for a second and think about something very different. A few years ago, we took a, a group of young adults to New York City for a short-term mission trip in, in inner city New York. If you've ever been to New York or a city similar as that, you know, one of the things that's a staple is riding the subway, and no matter wherever you go. And what I've quickly realized is that riding the subway in New York City is a, is a commitment. It's a learning process, but it's also a commitment. There are A trains and B trains and one trains and two trains, and they're all traveling through the same station. You know, you... You go down below to a station and you see all sorts of trains coming through. Um, and it's easy to get confused and to second-guess yourself if you don't plan ahead. We, uh, the team that I was with, you know, got on a, on a train one day and thought we were going somewhere and ended up somewhere totally different. I mean, it took us a while to get, you know, find the way back. The way to be successful, to successfully navigate the subway system in a city like that is to consult a map ahead of time, identify where you want to go and which train is headed to that destination. And then when that train comes, you commit. <laughs> you get on and you ride it until you get to your, your destination. If that's where the train is going, then you get on board. You don't sit and think, well, maybe there's another way. Maybe I'll try this one instead. You know where you're going and you commit. Today, those two ideas um, are, I think, a, a way to view what the scriptures have to say and how we are to live our lives in light of them, the scriptures tell us what God is up to. It tells us where God is headed. It, it tells us, if, if you want to use these, these ideas, it tells you what the winning team looks like. And it invites you to wholeheartedly jump in. Even if you're not the most gifted player, you don't see yourself as the center of attention, you don't think you have a whole lot to offer, it says, listen, this team is a winning team. This is where it's headed. Or it says, listen, this is where the the train is headed. This is where the the movement of history is going. This is where the trajectory of the Almighty God, of what He's up to, and where it's going to end up. He says, come on, commit. Get on board. Uh, Don't wait for something better to come along. And if you were to sum it up in one word of where things are headed... You could, you could sum it up with a word like restoration. Or maybe a, a word that I like leaving a little bit better is the idea of renovation or renewal. Uh, another group that we used to take, uh, another trip that we used to take with, with youth and young adults a long time ago was to go to St. Louis. They had a, a church there called New City Fellowship that did ministry in the inner city of St. Louis. And I remember the first trip... We went on going and driving. We got there. Um, this was not encouraging for those of you that have youth and to send them on youth trips. But we, we got there late at night. It's a lot, it takes a long time to get to St. Louis. And the address that they'd given us to go to was an address of their offices, which were inside of this inner city neighborhood in St. Louis. And so we drive up in these two 15-passenger vans in the, the dead of night in inner city St. Louis at this neighborhood and we pull up to the offices and nobody was there <laughs> and uh, so the people in the neighborhood are looking at us and we're looking back and uh, and it was it was kind of a tense situation for a little while well 
the weekend ended up going great. We would go back into that neighborhood uh, on, on a day-to-day basis, and we would do work. And they had what the, the church had done is they'd purchased these apartments, and we were to, to renovate them, to go in. And, and we spent the first two or three days ripping out, tearing up, um, uh, cleaning out, throwing away. And then the rest of the week, the, the last two or three days, restoring, putting new carpet in, painting the walls, uh, putting new flooring, cleaning up. And when we left, it was the same place, but it was totally different. It was restored. It was renewed. Um, it, was, it was changed. And we got to see, we got to witness this transformation take place from a Sunday to a Saturday. It was, it was a, quite a, a neat thing to be able to take part of. That's what God is up to. That's what these passages are telling us is, is the end of the story of where things are headed. And it invites us to take part in that now. Three points quickly. And again, it's just going to be overview fashion. We'll hit more of these in detail in the next few weeks. The first thing, this restoration is a restoration of people. A restoration of people. We see, first of all, spiritual transformation. In chapter 21, in verse 3, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then in chapter 22, verse 3, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. There's this idea of spiritual renewal. God himself Just like he was in the Garden of Eden in the first two chapters of the Bible. You see him now here again with his people with no obstacles to his access. He's there with them. Uh, They they have no need of of sun or of lights because he is their light. He is there shining forth and they see him. There's worship. There's people laid bare and unashamed. Usually a very scary thing and now it's, it's seen here as... Uh, the opposite of what happened in the fall. There's no shame. There's total openness. They're able to do everything to His glory. Trust Him totally in His goodness and give Him the worship that He deserves. So there's restoration spiritually. Secondly, there's physical restoration. Uh, You can see hints of it here. Uh, This more clearly displayed in texts like 2 Corinthians 5 where it says, "...in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling." If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that, I love this phrase, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. That picture, that our mortal bodies will be swallowed up by life. Is the picture of, if you go to the beach, you see a small wave, and you're out there with your, your family, and you're, you know, with my kids, I'm helping them jump these little waves, and all of a sudden, on the horizon, you see this huge wave coming up, and all the kids scream and giggle and laugh, and those smaller waves, and us in them, are swallowed up by this larger wave that comes over. They're, they're not done away with, those smaller waves, but they're swallowed up by something greater. That's the picture of us. We're, we're not going to be done away with. We, we are eternal beings. 
But these bodies, thank goodness, as we talked about last week, these bodies that we have now will be swallowed up, will be transformed, will be changed um, by life, physical restoration. Spiritual restoration, physical restoration, and then finally relational restoration. In chapter 22, we, we just read it. You see the healing of the nations. And then starting in verse 3, you see a bunch of plural pronouns. You see uh, plural words. His servants, plural, will come and worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We will be with all the saints of every tongue and tribe and nation together, um, which is impossible to see and have that, that relational unity unless God himself has, has, has exacted a change, a relational restoration, which he has in this picture. It's a picture of relational harmony and singleness of purpose. Everyone is there for the same reason. They're united arm in arm for the same thing, to give glory forever to the God of glory. We have day-to-day decisions to make of what we're going to do with our time, where we're going to spend our energy. If, if people are going to, uh, to get under our skin and make us mad and ruin our day, or to whether we're going to choose to say, well, where, where is that person headed? And if they're a fellow believer, like it or not, <laughs> they're headed for spiritual restoration, for physical restoration, and for relational restoration. As we look at a brother and sister in Christ, even if they get on our nerves and we start to see them of what they're going to be, we get invited in and say, you know what? As a mess as they are, that's opportunity for me to get on board and and helping begin in whatever way I can, whether it's being patient or whether it's loving them or whether it's being tough and tough love sometimes with them or whatever it is, whatever I can be involved to help them to where they're headed anyway to what they're going to be like any day one day. How can I help my brother or sister be more spiritually restored, to be more of a worshiper, that they will be in full one day? How can I help use whatever gifts I have to help bring any sort of physical restoration? Every time my wife takes a Band-Aid out and puts it on one of those little cuts of those little skin knees that happens all the time in our house, she is in some small part taking part in what God is up to for eternity physically restoring this little body. And again, it'll be swallowed up by something so much more great. Relational restoration. How can we get involved in messy situations and help people be restored, our believers, rightly to each other? That's where we're headed. What's God up to? He's up to restoration of people, first of all. Secondly, he's up to the restoration of nature. Of nature. You see in, in, in these chapters pictures of it, but you see it maybe even more clearly in a passage like Romans 8, where it says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who has subjected, subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for the adoption of sons, 
the redemptions of our bodies. People, as we studied when we studied Genesis, are always primary in this biblical storyline. They're where God is most focused and cares most about. But we are his representatives. And what happens with us, so, so goes humans, so goes his creation. And what he's saying here is, listen, I'm more concerned, I'm, I'm definitely primarily concerned with people, with uh, these, this uh, restoration of people. But through them and because of them, in the same way that I created all things, through them will nature be restored. People laugh at me when, in reference to redemption, I use the illustration of a landscape architect. But I, a lot of times that's what I use when I'm talking about doing your job as unto the, the, the glory of God. There's... And partly, I guess, is probably how I grew up. A lot of my jobs were either working on the farm or doing landscaping type stuff in the summers to make extra money. And it's so easy. I mean, I, I went and bought some pine straw this, this past weekend to get ready for having folks over for Easter. And it's so easy to make, uh, just to cover things up and make them look nice but really not do the job that needs to be done. Or to, you know, to trim the hedges really quickly but really, it, you know, it's not really perfectly, you know, even or whatever else. But, you know, that's good enough. Let's move on. Um, but for a, a, a landscape architect, one who that's, that's what God has called them to do, gifted them to do, and that's what they do for a living. To say, hey, I'm going to do my job. Nobody will probably see this little piece behind this bush. But I'm going to do it so that it's beautiful. Well, I'm going to do it unto the Lord because that's what God is about. He's about restoration. And I, in whatever way I can, when I look out behind my backyard, behind the fence, um, there is just growth. And it bothers me on a regular basis. I want to get back there with a chainsaw and some fun tools and just have at it and cultivate that so that it's, it's no longer just a mess. And part of that's my, you know, not healthy perfectionist tendencies, wanting my yard to look good. But part of that, I think, comes from something like this to say, hey, God in, in, in original creation created us to, to be cultivators, to take what was beautiful and perfect and good in the garden and take it to the ends of the earth. And in a similar way, with redemption coming, uh, that's where things are headed. They're going to be so much more beautiful than we can even imagine. We see pictures. I see pictures. I've never been out west. But I see pictures of, uh, of the mountains, the landscapes of, that, that I'd love to, to see one day. And, and what we're told is, is even that is affected by sin. And it's not as beautiful as maybe it was once created to be, but it will be one day restored. And we'll talk more about the, the details of that, but... Think about the implications that would have on a day-to-day basis for you to think about God is obviously most concerned with me, but through me to restore nature, to just restore creation. Um, it gives new significance to, uh, to day-to-day things that we may tend to dread or, or take for granted, like cutting the grass or raking leaves or whatever it might be. Lastly, he's, uh, he's about the restoration of culture. And this may be a controversial one. I'm looking forward to really diving into this one when we look at Isaiah 60. But listen to this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw what? A garden? I saw a countryside? No, he says, I saw the holy city. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And, and he goes on to talk about that, a bride adorned for a husband. In chapter 22, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing through the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle 
of the street of the city. In most of our minds, uh, cities are a place of, a lot of times, dirt and pollution. And uh, when, when I grew up, I grew up on, in the country, so it's easy for me to say that's, that's God's country. You know, the, the countryside, the rural areas. We, we tolerate the cities, so that, but this is, where, this is where everything's going back to is this countryside. Well, the picture in Scripture is always from a garden to a city. And there's a garden inside the city. There's, there's, there's definitely aspects of that. But the picture is one of a renewal of culture. Um, the idea that we've talked about in here, that culture is not a product of sin, that if everything were left to, um, to, to Adam and Eve without sin, they still would have produced articles of culture. The first time Adam woke up and, and it was the season of fall and he looked there and leaves were falling on the ground and and he started picking them up, and Eve said, hey, why don't you try this stick that's got these little branches hanging off? It may help you, you know, rake them up a little bit. Actually, that's, let's, let's call it that. Let's call it a rake. You know, right there, they've created a cultural artifact to help them with their, you know, with the Garden of Eden. So it was headed there anyway. The, 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 the bad part about culture is it's been affected by sin. And so the things that could be used to develop the scream of God's glory have been corrupted. So the picture in the scriptures are one of renewal of culture, not, not obliteration, not recreation, but of renewal. God doesn't give up and scrap everything. He renews. He restores. And we'll, we'll talk about that really specifically when we get into First Peter and some of these other passages. Um, but the picture is, is one of, of renewal and one of completion, meaning that this is a big statement. But meaning that we can be about restoration of culture now with the confidence that one day it will be completed and made perfect. I don't understand the details of that. I know when Jesus comes back, it's going to be like that wave. And it's, well, it's going to be, everything's going to be transformed and made new. I think I've shared it in here. To me, the best thing I can get out of it is Beauty and the Beast. The end of that movie, the Disney movie, where... Beauty and, and the beast, you know, get together, and that love transforms the beast into a prince again. But it doesn't stop with him. All of a sudden, the magic goes out from them and transforms that castle that was filled with gargoyles and everything else, and it, it's it's transformed into a golden castle with angels. Um, and you know, the teapot is changed back into the the maid and everything else. And it's uh, the the ultimate thing is the people. But then through them, because of their represent, representative nature, everything else has changed. In Isaiah 60, and I'll give you a, a, just a teaser here. You can go read it sometime. In Isaiah 60, it's, it's a passing phrase used that says, The ships of Tarshish will bring in the wealth of the nations and the children of Israel. And it doesn't seem like much. It's like, that's a neat picture of the ships of Tarshish bringing people of, uh, the children of Israel in. But the problem with that is every other place in Isaiah leading up to that point, the ships of Tarshish are used as, as, as in judgment. They're, they're going to be obliterated. They're going to be destroyed by God. They're objects of God's judgment. And so to see, because they, they, they represent the pride of, of mankind, of look, look at us, look what we've built, look what we've made. And yet here in Isaiah 60, you see them coming into the, the holy city, New Jerusalem. What in the world? That doesn't seem right. I think what Isaiah is saying is that, hey, God owns the ships of Tarshish. They're not bad in and of themselves. They're, they're bad because sin has corrupted them, and they've been used to glory, glorify man. And he's just like, when I'm coming back, when I renew all things, I'm going to take those items of culture that were used for evil purposes, and I will transform their use. 
And what was evil purposes will now be transformed and used to speed people to my side into the city. To give me worship. To give me the honor that I deserve. That's why you see phrases like our, our swords will be beaten into what? Plowshares. No more need for them to be swords. We'll beat them up and we'll use them to, to cultivate the new heavens and the new earth. So there's a picture of restoration of culture. Sure, the uses will be changed of cultural artifacts, but they will be used for the glory of God. You've got little decisions to make today of how you interact in whatever your calling is, your job or what you spend your time doing. Um, this should inform it that even culture God cares about, and he's about restoring it. So what can you do with your energy and your time and your calling, your set of gifts to begin that process or to continue that process that started when Jesus raised from the dead and will finish when God comes back to make all things new, when he brings heaven to earth, this new heavens and this new earth. I've got four kids under the age of six or six and under, and they keep me very busy. One of the things that is uh, in, my, in my weak moments that I miss is just being able to go out and eat a meal and go to a movie because uh, I loved movies. And one of the things I like about movies is the previews. I, liked, I, I used to like to get there. I used to like because I haven't been in a movie in years, but I, I used to like to get there early enough to get some popcorn and a big Coke and then just get there to see all the previews, see what movies were coming up and, and, and be excited about it even before the, the feature presentation was, was to come. Um, you know, you got the guy with the cool voice, you got the soundtrack, you got the best parts of the movie represented. But as great as the previews are, they don't substitute for the movie itself. They're, they're there to whet your appetite for what's to come. Today, I hope I've given you just a small, quick preview, you know, a trailer of what's to come. And we'll look more deeply at some of these details as we go, but we won't be able to answer all the questions. We won't be able to give you the full picture because it's yet to come. But this is what it's going to be like. Restored devotion. Restored relationships. Restored culture. And even now, every day you wake up, you can go about taking a part in that grand story, that grand movie of where things are headed, knowing that the ending has already been written and that it is sure the God who made all things will bring restoration. So the question for us is, what part will we play even today? Let's pray. God, thank you for that picture of hope that you will restore us as people, that you will restore um, nature, and that you will restore culture. And God, we pray that just knowing those, those truths, and as we study them even more in depth in the coming weeks, that you'd impress upon our hearts to be about that work even now with assurance that our, what we put our hands to has eternal weight, eternal significance, and with the surety that you are coming to complete the work that has been started. We pray we live in that hope even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.